we saw that what happened with Hurricane Maria a couple of years ago in 2017, in which, you know, really that was a very, very strong case for environmental racism. You know, people of Puerto Rico were without water and electricity for months. This is Community Dialogues, a program for frank discussions about race, racism, and racial justice. I'm Nora Thomas. Our guest today is Dr. Maria Cruz Torres, an associate professor at the School of Transporter Studies at Arizona State University. She specializes in anthropology and environmental studies with a focus on coastal communities and the intersection between the environment and gender. In her conversation, we talked about environmental racism. Maria says the growing effects of climate change are disproportionately affecting communities of color. This has been a topic of interest for many years, and there have been there have been quite well, well, you know, maybe a, a few um, research conducted here and there about uh, uh, you know um, racial issues within environmental issues. I think um, what it hasn't really taken into consideration so much has to do with a lot of the policies. Also, how many of those policies are institutionalized, but also like people don't have sometimes a really clear idea of what environmental racism is or whether or not this is something like, you know, there are other terms maybe where people uh, people use to define that. And I think we've seen more recently now, maybe communities of color now, you know, getting together, taking collective action, protesting against um, environmental racism, against uh, environmental issues that are affecting their daily lives. Um, an example that comes to mind is the Flint, uh, Michigan water issue, when we have, um, you know, different communities kind of getting together also protesting and demanding that the state would provide them with more um, uh, tests about, you know, the quality of the water, that the, the drinking water, the drinking water. For someone who has maybe never heard of the term environmental racism, and, you know, from my understanding, it's an incredibly broad and expansive term, but how would you define it? Well, it refers to the systematic and also, I would say, differential impact of uh, environmental issues upon communities on color. This is like the broader definitions. And this also includes like other issues to include like power issues, for example, who, who has the power in making decisions that affect uh, communities on co- of color in regarding, um, for example, whether or not to uh, develop a highway close to a community or a landfill also close to a community, or even like things like, for example, even like, um, food security, you know, even um, providing people with uh, the access that they need to have healthy food on a daily basis. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Living in the Bronx, there is a fair amount of attention to the fact that the the construction of the Cross Bronx Expressway split the community and also because it's a major interstate highway uh, produces a lot of air pollution. Um, Definitely, the Bronx is a community that has a lot of Um, areas that could be described as food deserts. Um, But this is an issue that extends beyond just like dense urban areas, right? It is an issue that we find also, and I think it's also more common in the the global south. I'm thinking about my own, you know, I work in Mexico, for example, and uh, Mexico City also faces a lot of environmental issues, a lot of uh, poor neighborhoods, which people don't even have access to clean water or you know, they, they had to deal with air pollution on a daily basis as well too. So it is an issue, it's, it is a global issue. It's not just an issue that is just not just localized in the United States. It, it is a very, very important and it is also a global issue. And we see more communities of colors and uh, for example, indigenous communities or Afro Latino communities in many of the places also fighting for uh, protection, for example, of natural resources. 
but also like getting, you know, just uh, pro protecting their environment and, and getting, you know, making sure that they have a healthy environment in general. You mentioned earlier that certain policies uh, have played a really large role in uh, creating environmental racism issues. Can you name a few that have been particularly? I, I don't know specifically policy, but I know like in general, uh, policies, for example, when people are trying to decide, uh, you know, uh, different issues uh, about whether or not, you know, uh, like to build like a road in a place, a specific place or a landfill in a specific place. Sometimes there is not really representation from communities of color. Uh, some of the meetings, uh, or even if they have representation, sometimes their voices are not really taken or their opinions are not really taken into consideration. Um, this is where I think um, our government fails in really uh, providing more what we call environmental justice to those communities of color. When their voices are not heard, when their opinions are not taken into consideration, when people sometimes don't even find out that there is something, you know, a meeting or something to discuss a specific issue affecting the community until it's already very late. And I would say, you know, policies should also take race into consideration. And many of the policies, they don't look at that. They don't take that kind of intersectional approach to uh, understand the impact or the impacts upon communities of color. I guess it's really easy to think about certain massive infrastructure projects, particularly in like the early mid 20th century with the development of the interstate system and sort of like to talk about issues. I think it's a little easy for white people, I should say, to think about these as things that happen in the past that are hard to work around. Um, but from my understanding, this, these are the sorts of issues that continue to happen, right? It continues to happen and we see this more frequently now when we have natural disasters. For example, what happened in New Orleans with Katrina, how um, you know the largest population affected was the black community. In Katrina, we see the case of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is also, you know, territory of the United States. And we saw that what happened with Hurricane Maria a couple of years ago in 2017, in which, you know, really that was a very, very strong case for environmental racism. You know, people of Puerto Rico were without water and electricity for months, you know, and th this thing shouldn't happen in, 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 a, in a place that is, uh, you know, that is part of the United States as well. And I think that was my, one of the main criticisms that we heard from many organizations and politicians in general about the neglect and, and, and how Puerto Rico was really marginalized uh, within you know, the US at the, at the same time. I feel like growing up for at least me personally, environmentalism or any sort of sincere uh, effort to reduce um, environmental uh, like negative environmental impacts has always been framed in terms of individual choices, like with the sort of framing around carbon footprints or like how, like what your diet is. Um, is that like a particularly American mindset? I think it is, but I think, you know, sometimes people have no choice. Uh, I think like, uh, you know, um, poor communities, they don't have choice sometimes where to choose where they live, you know, uh, and uh, sometimes there are many other structural issues too. I'm thinking in, in cases here that I'm working here in the, around the US-Mexico border, we have what we call colonias in here, which are um, places in which people come without any infrastructure. And they have to wait many, many years actually to be able to get, and this is on the, on the US side of the border too. So to get you know, access to clean water, access to electricity. So this is something that is not just uh, something that happened in the past, I think something that are still ongoing and that is happening more frequently. I think that we don't bring these issues to the public, um, to public awareness. And I think this is one of the main problems with it, that not many people actually get to know about some of these issues until, you know, like, or, or at least we do the research 
unless we are in academia, but I think um, in general, the general public does not get to know a lot about some of these issues unless people, you know, begin taking collective action and they decide to take, um, you know, or, or voice, uh, you know, their concerns and their opinions to, to the wider public. Do you have any optimism that the, like the, the lack of widespread conversation about uh, these issues is getting a little bit better? I do. I'm very optimistic because what I see now is that people are really taking collective action. And I think communities organizing, uh, you know, you have, I'm sure there is a different communities uh, or different organizations um, in the Bronx working for environmental justice. I think environmental justice is something that we see now more frequently. We see this in the global south. We see this in different social movements that people and uh, of color, in, in, uh, indigenous people, for example, in, in Latin America are also involved. Uh, to defend uh, land, for example. So I'm very optimistic in that, you know, in the future that we see a lot of more environmental, instead of talking about environmental racism, then we could talk more about environmental justice. I guess for anyone who might be listening to this, who's in perhaps older parts of the country, more in, on the East Coast, um, who might be feeling like their neighborhoods and their, the infrastructure around them is very set in stone. Uh, it's hard to change the way things are and have been. Whereas like I personally am from the West um, and from a very rapidly growing city. So, it, you know, there's, it's, it's alarming to see bad policies be implemented, um, harmful policies, but at least there's like a possibility of going down a different road. What, uh, do you see any hope for changing the way things are in some of the country's older neighborhoods and cities? I think so. I think it all depends on the people. You know, at the end, I think I am an anthropologist and I have faith in people. I think that's what I, my research has shown, how people get organized to make changes. And I think this is all over and over different aspects of my life, like growing up in Puerto Rico, doing my research in Mexico, doing research in Florida, for example, as well, too. I went to school at Rutgers in New Jersey. So I was, uh, there was, um, uh, when I went, was a student at Rutgers, there was some, uh, a protest for um, apartheid. I think that was a time a lot of students got, became involved in that. So I see that you can actually, if you take collective action, get involved with the community and people work towards a common goal, I think that things, changes could be made, definitely. What is the relationship, and this is a very broad question, so answer it broadly as you see fit. Yeah. What is the relationship between climate change and environmental racism? Well, there is a lot, and this is a very important question too, because I think now what we've seen also is that, yeah, there is a very direct correlation. And uh, because you look at the places where, for example, uh, communities of color tend to live, and uh, when there is a natural disaster, like a hurricane, uh, you could see that the most people, um, the people who are the most impacted are usually people of color and communities of colors. And those are also the communities that take longer to recover as well too. We saw that in the case, you know, with the Katrina, we've seen that also in Texas, a more like low-income communities as well too. And then we saw also the case of Puerto Rico, how long it took the island to recover of the, of the hurricane because of, of, of so many issues that actually, you know, like I don't know, went through. But I think there is a correlation. I think also, for example, when we look at issues of migration, and this is something that I mean in my class, that now we can talk environmental refugees. These are people who are displaced by environmental problems like major natural disasters, but not just disasters. It could be like droughts. It could be like lack of access to food, for example. 
like when land is now used, for example, for uh, instead for uh, for farming, it is used to build more chopping malls or other things like that that doesn't really have uh, direct benefits to some of the local communities. People have no choice, like, you know, than to migrate, and and they have to, to to go to a place where they can have better opportunities and where where they can have access at least to food on a daily basis. And I see that, you know, you look at the cases what is happening now in places like Central America, like Honduras. One of the main reasons people are migrating is also because of the hurricane that hit also uh, Honduras. So people who migrate then become environmental refugees or environmental migrants, definitely. I feel like I've seen that uh, in not very distant not very distantly in the future, the United States will be receiving more environmental refugees than any other type, whereas we typically uh, associate refugees with civil unrest. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're going to see that as long as we, you know, we are not able to tackle cl- climate change, which is something that is really affecting, impacting a lot of communities, uh, especially poor communities, not just in the global south, but also again here, I think we're going to see more people actually having no other choice than to leave their home communities and, and try to come and uh, make it. We already seen uh, the case, for example, of Haitians who left um, Haiti after the earthquake. Uh, many of them actually went to places in South America. Um, some of them actually attempted to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. So many of them, um, because they couldn't, they are now living in Tijuana. So there is a large, um, a, a very, not a large, but I would say a good size um, community of Haitians in Tijuana, which is something that's very relatively new as well too. And this, they could be considered to be also uh, migrant refugees in that case as well too. That makes sense. I guess returning to you know climate disasters like the mm-hmm. earthquake in uh, Haiti, like especially with something as like the recent mm-hmm. example of the blizzard in Texas, uh, and while it's obviously very yeah. scary to see uh, unusual weather like that, do you think That's the right. fact that it's becoming more and more common uh, will spur change? I hope so. And this is my hope. Actually, I hope that uh, that people, you know, and this is happening. I mean, this is not the first time it happened. It happened also in Texas. It happened in Florida with the hurricanes. And uh, I think um, that there's to be more awareness here. And I think, uh, you know, I will really... Um, you know, we like to kind of uh, in, invite, you know, um, um, agencies, for example, government agencies working in, especially in low-income communities to really develop a plan for mitigation of those uh, of the impact of climate change. Because I'm sure this is something that is going to keep happening. Uh, we are in the process in, in, you know, what we call the Anthropocene, which is more like a, a, a different geological era that is characterized by the uh, human impact upon the environment. Okay? So we're going to see a lot of more changes. We're going to see a lot of more natural disasters, but I think um, you know, we need to be prepared. And I think um, helping out and, uh, you know, um, uh, and, and finding ways to really uh, making sure that especially community of colors um, don't suffer all the burn and uh, or all the impact of this um, climate change. I think it is, it, is, it is not just a need. I think it is something that we morally, um, you know, need to do. Uh, I understand. Uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, just oversimplify once more. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could name like three policy proposals that would like, you know, the U.S. could try to implement right now that could make a really big um, difference. Like what, what might those changes be? Probably like um, housing would be one, like uh, more access to housing. I think this is the main issue. And I think, uh, so that would be one. I 
think I would like to maybe see that, um, you know, like uh, better opportunities for people to obtain housing. I think education would be another one too. I know there is still um, very uh, low-income communities. And I think I have many students in my classes who come from those income community, low-income communities who struggle, for example, to, to pay for the education. So I think having more opportunities for education, more opportunity for housing, I think that, that's a great idea. Uh, the other policy, it should be something, I'm not sure what, what exactly that would mean, but it would be something about getting uh, people more access to food, to food security, especially in those areas that we call food deserts and uh, how people then do, can we guarantee that they have access to healthy, not just any food, but healthy food. So I would say those would be my three kind of main things that I would like to tackle uh, you know, in terms of the policies. I don't know how much uh, people are willing to put into those and create like specific policies, but, but I think that to the other thing is basically, you know, to a lot of, you know, and, and this is something that I'd experienced growing up um, close to um, two major um, kind of um, companies. I, I grew up in a town uh, where we have an union carbide and where we have uh, sun oil refinery. Um, the aftermath of the consequences of that was, uh, you know, a lot of people suffer from health issues, especially asthma, because of the exposure to um, that, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of air quality that was um, created by, you know, impacted by, by these companies. So I think another policy would be not to build, you know, places like these, uh, places of pollution or sources of pollution, uh, sources of water or air pollution or even noise pollution in areas and in communities, you know, where people especially are struggling to make a living and to survive on a daily basis. Well, Professor, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thank you uh, for your insights. And here's hoping that things get a little bit better. And, you know, obviously it's a, there's a lot of urgency around climate change particularly. And I do think more and more people are recognizing uh, the widespread impacts um, sure. and that it's not restricted to certain parts of the world or the country. So my, my hope is also the next generation, you know, as a professor, I just hope that the next generation will be the ones who will be able to make the most uh, changes and have the most impact on some of these uh, environmental issues. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> that was Dr. Maria Cruz Torres from Arizona State University. This has been Community Dialogues. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. I'm Nora Thomas. Thank you for listening. <laughs>